0: Hello, and welcome to a Hoover Institution Roundtable discussion on Reagan's Soviet Policy as a Guide to Dealing with Iran, North Korea, and Other Rogue Regimes. Our speaker in this recording is George P. Schultz, the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the U.S. Secretary of State from 1982 to 1989, where he played a key role in implementing a foreign policy that led to the successful conclusion of the Cold War. His remarks were recorded on March 23, 2016.
1: Let's start with the 1980 campaign. I see Dick Allen here. He worked the national security side of things. I see Annalise Anderson here. She and her late husband Marty and I worked the economic side. And one thing was clear with President Reagan. These two things were joined. He understood that if you're going to have a strong foreign policy, you've got to have a strong base and have a strong economy. So that was evident during the campaign and throughout. Here are, at least as I would put them down, Ronald Reagan's playbook. First, let it be clear to everybody that you do what you say you're going to do, that you can execute. Something happened earlier in his um, presidency that had a big impact, I think. The air controllers went on strike, and people ran into the Oval Office, Mr. President, Mr. President, this is very complicated. He said, it's not complicated. It's simple. They took an oath of office, they violated it, they're out. And people all over the world said, is the man crazy? What about the planes? But I guess coming over from his experience as governor of California, he understood the importance of execution. So he had a secretary of transportation named Drew Lewis who had been chief executive of a large transportation company. So Drew understood the problem. Chief executive, he knew how to get something to happen and he kept the planes flying. So All over the world, people said to themselves, watch out, the guy pays for keeps. So he could execute and do the things that he said he was gonna do and make it work. I think that's very important. Second, be realistic. Don't kid yourself. Don't throw away the rose-colored glasses, but don't be afraid to see an opportunity when it comes. I remember when he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. People went wild all over the place. And my friend, Paul Nitze, who I had lucky enough to be working with when I was secretary, was testifying, I think, before the Senate um, Armed Forces Committee And they were all after him. They all knew him about the president's statement. And finally, I think it was Senator Levin who said to him, Paul, how can you serve in an administration where the president would call the Soviet Union an evil empire? And Paul said, Senator, have you considered the possibility that the statement might be accurate? End of the hearing. But anyway, realism. Don't kid yourself. Third, be strong. You have a weak hand. Don't try to negotiate from a weak hand. You're just going to get your head handed to you. Develop a strong hand. Be strong economically, militarily, but also strength of purpose and confidence. And next, figure out what your agenda is. Don't spend a lot of time thinking what the other guy's agenda is, because if you do that, you're going to wind up negotiating with yourself. (laughs) What is your agenda, what do you want? Uh, The basis of, it's clear to the other guy, you, you do what you say you're gonna do, you're realistic, you're strong, and you have an agenda, you engage. So that's what he did with the Soviet Union. Although there was one place where, before we were strong, we negotiated and it came about In an odd way, tell you a little story. I had been in China. I landed at Andrews Air Force Base Friday morning. I was lucky to land. It was snowing. Snowed all day Friday. Snowed Friday night. Snowed all day Saturday. The Reagans were stuck in the White House, so our phone rings and Nancy says, "How about coming over for supper?" So my wife and I go over, and the four of us are sitting around, and all of a sudden they start asking me, both Nancy and President about the Chinese leader, what kind of people do they? Have? Do they have a sense of humor? Do they have a bottom line? Can you find their bottom line? Probing questions. Then they started asking me about the Soviet leaders, because they knew I'd dealt with them when I was Secretary of the Treasury. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me, this guy has never had a real conversation with a big-time communist leader, and he's dying to have one. So I had gotten permission, it wasn't easy, have once a week meetings with Ambassador Dobrynin. The idea was, if there are weeds, let's get them out before they grow. That was all, nothing amb- ambitious. So I said to well, him, Mr. President, Dobrynin's coming over next Tuesday at five o'clock, one of our meetings, maybe you'd bring him over here and you talk to him. He said, that's a great idea. it only take about 10 minutes. All I want to tell him is, if his new leader Andropov has just succeeded Brezhnev, no leader is interested in a constructive conversation, I'm ready, that's all. That was blindingly big news, that that was his attitude. Nobody realized that. But suddenly I had, I knew where my guy's gut was, and Nancy's, but so I bring Dobrinen over, we're there for at least an hour and a half. A good fraction of the time, a third or more, was spent on Soviet jewelry, And it was clear to Dobrinen that Reagan, he knew names, he knew incidents, he was well informed. And then we talked about the Pentecostals. You remember they rushed into <coughs> the embassy during the Carter, they're still there. And you um, didn't want to expel them or they'd be killed. So Reagan talked about that. He says, it's like a big neon sign you've got there in Moscow, you don't treat people right, you don't let them worship what the they want, don't let them immigrate, you will do something about it. And he talked about many other issues. I'd love to have seen to Brennan's reporting cable because Reagan demonstrated a knowledge of the intricacies of many of these subjects that people did not give him anything like credit for. So I'm writing back to the State Department to Brennan and we talked about it and he said, why don't we make the Pentecostal thing a special project? So we exchanged some papers back and forth. Finally, I got one that I thought was pretty good. I took it over to the president. I said, Mr. President, if Abe Sophia were here, a good lawyer like Abe, he'd tell you you could drive a truck through the holes in this memo. (laughs) But I have to believe, with all the background, that if we get them out of the embassy, they'll be allowed to go home and eventually emigrate. And we talked about it, thought about it, rolled the dice. We got them out. They were allowed to go home. And a couple of months later, they were allowed to emigrate, along with their families. It was a big thing, I think, around C- six <clears throat> together. And the deal, Reagan had kept saying all the time, I just want something to happen, I won't say a word, I just want it to happen. I said, Mr. President, you remember the deal is, they'll let them out if you don't crow. He never said a word. It was a big mystery to the press. How in the hell did this happen? <laughs> he didn't say. And in some ways I, thought to myself, this is a bigger event than it looks like, because on the one hand, he saw that you could make a deal, and they'd carry it out, and they, they understood the temptation of American politician to say, look what I did, he didn't, he'd said he wouldn't, and he didn't, so it's good for his word, you can trust him, so that's back, this was before, this is where the Cold War was still very cold, and so on. But as he pursued this, I think it's fair to say that there was a huge debate within the Reagan administration, and Dick, you I'm sure remember this, between people who thought that eventually, if enough pressure was on, the Soviet Union would change. That was the original Kennan position. But I think... Most of the people in the CIA and in the DOD thought that was not so. Depending on your point of view, it'll affect what you do. And so I was to start, well, what we started with was the INF deployment. Remember the Soviets had deployed, they had 1,500 INF missiles deployed, we had none. Our entering negotiating position was zero on both sides. People said, what a ridiculous position. We said, well, it's our, it's, that's our agenda. We're not talking about their that agenda. That's our agenda. And the deal with NATO was that we would have a negotiation about this. If negotiations failed, we would deploy in Britain, Italy, and Germany. In Germany, it would be Pershings, that is, ballistic missiles with a nuclear tip. The others were cruise missiles. So, we have the negotiation, and we had the Korean airliner shoot down by the Soviet Union, remember. And we had intercepted the conversation between the pilot who shot it down and his ground control. There was time elapsed between back and forth, so the ground control must have consulted with somebody. Anyway, then the pilots shut it down. We had the conversation, and we led the charge in condemning the Soviet Union. But I went ahead with a previously scheduled meeting with Gromyko, and we sent our arms control negotiators back to Geneva, and all hell broke loose within the administration. The people didn't think that was a good idea. We said, look, if we do that, we convince our European friends that these negotiations are for real. And when it comes to deployment, that's going to be critical. So the negotiations didn't work. We deployed, first in Britain, then in Italy. But then the big deal was Germany. And it was a huge, you remember, a big effort and traumatic time. A lot of the Helmut Schmidt's party deserted him. It was Helmut Kohl's finest hour, and we got them deployed. And the Soviets produced a lot of war talk very inflammatory, and basically our alliance held firm. It's an example for me, there's a difference between strength and force. This was an example of strength, of the cohesion of the alliance. No force was used, it was strength, and it was more important than force. So they had all this war talk, and gradually over a few months, things gradually settled down more and more. And by August I was able to go to the President and say, "Mr. President, at four different capitals in Europe, a Soviet diplomat at a party has come up to one of ours and said virtually the same thing, which he think amounts to, if Gomiko is invited to Washington, when he comes to the General Assembly in September, he'll accept. I said, "You probably want to think it over, Mr. President, because Jimmy Carter stopped these meetings when they invaded Afghanistan, and they're still there. Reagan said, I don't have to think it over. Let's get them here. So Gromyko came. It was a giant event. It was, in many ways, a kind of a turning point. And one story I like is, told this Nancy funeral. Um, I said to Nancy, what's going to happen is Gromyko will come to the West Wing. We'll have a meeting in the Oval Office walk down the colonnade to the mansion. That's your home. There'll be some stand-around time, then there'll be a working lunch. So why don't you be there at the stand-around time? You're the hostess. And she said, great idea. <coughs> so she's there. Gromyko's a smart diplomat. He sees Nancy. He just hones in on her. And before long, he says to her, does your husband want peace? You know Nancy could bristle. She said, of course my husband wants peace. And Gromyko says then, every night before he goes to sleep, Whispered in his ear, peace. Gromyko's <laughs> a little taller than she is. She puts his hand on his shoulder and he pulls him down so he has to bend his knees, and she says, "I'll whisper it in your ear, peace." <laughs> End of the Cold War, right there. <laughs> anyway, this was a big change, and after the election, arms control negotiations resumed, and we I had a meeting with Gromyko, and we got that also. This is all pre-Gorbachev, I might say. Then comes the Gorbachev years, and I remember meeting with him, our delegation. I had the luxury because Vice President Bush was there, so he was head of our delegation. I could sit back. I had a few things the president wanted me to say, but mostly I could sit back and watch. So I watched Gorbachev. I had never met him before. He had a big stack of cards in front of him, probably from the bullet bureau. He shuffled them all the time. He never looked at them. And we covered a wide range of subjects, much broader than I'd ever seen covered with a Soviet leader. I'm the only person there who had a baseline, because I dealt with him a lot when I was Secretary of the Treasury. So afterwards, I said to our group, this is a very different leader from anybody we've ever encountered. He's smarter, he's quicker, he's agile, he's going to be a real adversary. But you can have a conversation with him. He listens and he responds to what you say and he expects you to listen and respond to what he says. Usually, I sit here and I say something to you and it goes by your ear and you say something and it that goes, by. that's not a conversation. But Gorbachev, you have a conversation. And <clears throat> then we uh, have a meeting in Geneva. By this time, Reagan. Is very strong on reductions in nuclear weapons. He considered them to be immoral. So we come to the Geneva summit. It was interesting. I was there a day ahead of time with Nancy and the president. We went around. And it, people say, well, he's an actor. Well, and it, one of the things actors do is they figure out how to be effective. There's nothing wrong with that. So we went around all day long to different places and figured out how this was going to work. You saw a little chalet down by the Lake Geneva that was within an easy walking distance of where we were going to meet. So that got set up with a fireplace and two chairs. And in the afternoon, when there was a break, Reagan says to Gorbachev, why don't we take a walk? So they walked down to the lake, and here's this place. They go in, sit down to the fire, and that was one of the most productive parts of the summit. But anyway, out of it came a statement, a nuclear war must never be fought and can never be won. Big time statement. And lots of other things. Well, I won't go into the, all of the stuff that happened subsequently, but the main point is, it was clear to everybody that Reagan could execute. If he said he was going to do something, he did it. And it worked. It was realistic. We developed strength in our economy and in our military, and in our sense of confidence in what we're doing. We had a clear agenda with the Soviet Union, which most people said was unachievable. We said, well, this is our agenda, this is not their agenda, it's our agenda. Human rights was prominent on our agenda, people said, I never talk about that. Well, that's our agenda. So we had our agenda, and then we engaged, and eventually prevailed. I always remember going to Gorbachev speak to the United Nations in December, 1988. I listened, the, the hard news was, he announced the withdrawal of Soviet, massive Soviet forces from Europe. That's what the press wrote about. I listened. I said, he announced the end of the Cold War. He had language about freedom of choice. Warsaw Pact countries must have been listening to that, and so on. So Reagan had that, and I have thought about the Iran negotiations. In the Iran negotiations, first of all, we had no semblance of strength, of execution capability. We had announced that if chemical weapons was used, they would be held to pay. They were used and nothing happened. So that was a demonstration that our word was not, we didn't carry through, and that is deep. Everybody sees it, and it means they discount what you say. Second, if you look at Iran realistically, what do you see? You see a huge state sponsor of terrorism. It's worth noting that their first terrorism was, was the Great Mosque in um, Saudi Arabia. So it was a Muslim attack, but they've made major attacks all over the place, huge sponsors of terrorism. They want a ballistic missile, what do they want a ballistic missile for? Their internal methods of government, they're more political executions for political reasons, more executions for political reasons in Iran than anywhere. And then they want a nuclear weapon. So that should be our agenda, right? Firstly, things weren't even on the table. And what there was in a UN Security Council resolution that had the ballistic missile, we gave that away. So it was a a negotiation that violated the Reagan playbook from start to finish. And we're going to pay a big penalty for that. So I think that um, it's important to think about your basic strategy and then see how you apply it. For instance, we had China up there. let's, Let's describe China realistically. It is much weaker than it looks, much weaker than it looks. It has a very peculiar demography. Beginning about 30 years ago, fertility dropped like a stone. The one-child policy reinforced what was already happening. It's important to note that because it's going to be so hard to reignite fertility. Meanwhile, they had big increases in the labor force, <coughs> and that was augmented by a big flow of people from rural to urban areas. That move by itself increased productivity. So China had a rising labor force and rising productivity. That's where the big GDP gains from. Now all of a sudden it's almost like a switch. The low fertility cohorts are the ones moving into the labor force. The Rural to urban probably still goes on, but not so much. So Iran will be lucky to have a flat labor force. And where they're going to get big increases in productivity is a question mark. So they think they're going to have a 7% rate of growth. I don't see where it's coming from. And the more they try to get around that problem by financial maneuvering, the worse they're going to get. So I think realistically looking at China, obviously it's a big country with a big population and a large (coughs) capability, but they are going to have big internal problems, exasperated by the the fact that I think the biggest problem of governance in, in these days is the problem of governing over diversity in an age of transparency. These days, in the information age, people everywhere know what's going on very easily. And they can communicate. Everybody has cell phones. They can communicate. And they do. So China is is a very diverse country. People don't realize how diverse it is. Religion is rolling in China in a big way the regime doesn't know what to do about it. They're trying to govern over diversity by ignoring it or suppressing it. One country, two systems for Hong Kong, they didn't carry through on that. So the protests. So I think there's a lot of turmoil. And all these people that move from rural to urban areas, if you read Chinese history, the safety net was always the family and the community. They've moved out of that safety net. Mm-hmm. Now you have people in relatively anonymous urban areas, and they've got a new problem on their hands. So if I'm describing China realistically, I think there are big problems there, and it needs to be looked at very carefully. You mentioned Chile. It's a kind of an interesting case and it raises some questions. When I was at the University of Chicago, the AID came to us and said, would we run an aid program? The Chilean economy was in a total mess. Aliande had mismanaged it badly. And we said, we don't know how to run a program. All we know how to do is teach economics. So they sponsored a program of bringing Chilean young potential economists to Chicago, and we taught them. We sent one of our best teachers down there first to the Catholic University in Chile to identify both students and professors who would give honest evaluations. So we got a stream of talented Chileans come. Then Pinochet takes over. And whatever else about Pinochet, he said, I don't know how to run an economy. It's a terrible mess. Anybody know how? And our guys put up their hands. We know how. So what became called the Chicago Boys ran it, And he supported them. And they put the only real free market economy in South America into place. It was the only economy that really worked all through the 1980s. But then, by this time I'm Secretary of State, we're watching Chile very carefully, and Pinochet sees a portion in the Constitution of Chile that says there should be an election for president every 10 years or something like that. So he decides to have an election, he's the only guy on the ballot, no problem, right? (laughs) Well, what happens is, the Um, People who didn't like him began to get organized and they were growing in uh, numbers and we had an ambassador down there named Barnes who was terrific. And we kept saying to the people, be careful, don't get drawn into violence because that's what he wants to use as a reason to cancel the election. Castro saw this and he sent arms down. And we found out about it. we interdicted the arms, and at any rate, the election went off, and Pinochet lost. So the open economy had something to do with bringing about political openness. I know Harry Rowan had a deep belief that this works very well and made some predictions about China that didn't come true. yeah anyway, I think we don't know it's a A subject worth bearing in mind, it does work sometimes. We had a secret weapon in our Iranian dealings when I was in office. It was an Iranian claims court. So I appointed Abe as our representative. And when the Iranians saw that we had a terrific US guy, they pointed one too. So we could have talks that were totally unknown very private, authoritative, and uh, private diplomacy was good. We helped them. That's how we got Jerry Saib out, for instance, remember? And also saved Rushdie.
0: <laughs> for more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.